I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Well, hello everyone. I'm not going to say very much. I just want to say uh, welcome. Thank you so much for for coming to to see the wonderful lineup this evening, um, and uh, to help us celebrate the launch of what we hope is a really strong Cambridge Literary Review issue ten. Um, and so the order tonight will be um, Drew Milne, and then Ellie Williams, and then Luke Roberts and Vani Capaldeo. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's probably all I want to say. I hope you enjoy. Thank you everyone for coming. Um, when I was uh, catching the train rather rapidly on the way, my six-year-old daughter said, what are you doing, Daddy? And I said, I was going to do a poetry reading. And she said, reading aloud or in your head? <laughs> uh, so this is the reading aloud version, but you may, you may prefer the reading in your head version. Uh, it's a great privilege to be in Cambridge Literary Review and to, to be in uh, this, this particular bookshop. Um, I'm going to read four poems, one of which isn't in Cambridge Literary Review as a way, by way of introduction, and the other three which are in the, um, the volume. And I'm not going to say m- much about the poems, but I, I thought I'd just, I mean, I don't really believe in anecdotal introductions, but just in the, sp- in the spirit of perversity, I thought I ought to explain one uh, little joke in this first poem, which is the reference to Marx and Spencer, um, which is a joke cracked by a colleague of mine who did his PhD on Marx and Spencer, Karl Marx and Edmund Spencer. And I, and I wrote a birthday lichen for him and included this in the joke. And from that birthday poem, uh, which was up on Facebook, uh, this little nugget was extracted and appears in the poem as Marx and Spencer. But that's a reading, a loud joke that doesn't kind of quite fit with the reading in your head joke, because you can see it's Marx and Spencer on the page. First poem is called News from Lycan Times. Many rivers to cross, many lichens to sing, many refugees to see and shelter in night when the night fisher swims against the tide that is dark capital. Is the song the same when in western wind the drones are funds in a month of ballad-busting, lunar-toting, dusty columns? Here, at the poetics of limit comrades, this is some deafening blur in saying, but why grammar does no stone, nor even the rosy of a present making up the clearing. Storm the material, then immateriality falls into lineage with the relations, striking socialism's symbiotic drifts, now place standards dreaming and vinyl over this raised playground. All is lichen star, symbiotic, tars and prolic cult morphemes hollering, ahoy there, oxygen, scolded be but screeds coming on strong, when the bombs fall, there will low down criminals bites for what can be but ire gone senseless in people talk. Which came first, Marx and Spencer, or truth to song, the blister logs talking of barks come plantations, the whole croppy punk punctuating a lichen gooding, when the weave words to foss, how the lichen born with cups 
gives Etruscan melody bearing, we in symbiotic alliance of lichen hold the evident truth to the self, namely that all lives are not made the same and the carbon liberation front will be the death of all but the persistent solidarity of algae now and in the calendar of lichens. Every eve is new, every time is wild, every birthday is a return to first principles before the eating of carbon cakes or musical statues and acid rain takes the biscuit to show us the way to darkest reserves as lark relics made into airs. Honey sound does sun money bounds over car dusters and sunk capital. The second poem is called Rewilding Yields. Part animal, part beast, the lit ecology of lichenometry heralds poesy poor's extinction, lining gloss, quantum, musing with frond, in pretenses imposing paradigms on every speculative hedge fund, slow bed into relative reveals. Not just a crisis in old physic, though that too, but relativity of grammars bending word worlds, and the wit is furious quick, so much to be desired, well, facile, when the sustained nose calls for footnotes, now butter over bread. This way lies scurvy, not photosynthesis, or in general pull of the moon to historical bounties, a statistical minimum, prospects in truth, personality in flames to justify to the funding hound, the panoply of aesthetic supper. Then aspect in play, or chiasmus, our ontological bouncer in song, this quantum hump horizon, call it what you will, but out of the dust cloud comes every definite article spent on wrecks, the new, not so playful, nor merely messy. Right as the parameter of same again and again, till the ambit set hard in concrete universals. Praxis just for its own sake, as in experiments that heat a word, but no demon of this analogy to resemble a species in lab coats. The loungers cut the coattails to spite their theories, without remainders. A one such remainder being love of form, a dupe lord of positivism, also known as the fallacy, constitutive formalism, does smell as high, just not so. Trial and error goes to a tough judgment court among clattering bills when the word paint flies even to a sorry pillow book. No, it won't do. It is not just the form guide to lived experiences, then again for gravity as prose. By concepts of procession, moons the espousing, seek some grouse, if not the thinking we at first, then once the never once again be our republic. Well, the merger calls fug, fog, and fakery words, subject to rendition or torture. All these poems are from a long sequence called Lichens for Marxists, um, which I'm pleased to say has just had a, a little um, essay published on it in the Jacket 2 journal, which is online, and there's a link to it in the Cambridge Literary Review page on Facebook. Um, and there are a series of ways in which the question of how lichens might be political kind of resonate. Uh, in this particular poem, it might be useful, if you don't know, that litmus paper is made from lichens. Uh, this is called Proof in the Litmus. Some things cannot be stated too clearly, for to want of urgency can kill the very conditions of the possible there alerted. 
such as the crushing of the Anthropocene, turned Haifa, done to the double genitive, as who pummels the always already not so human into submission, and then not thing, things so much as the arms of the farmer, transpositions in cultivations of scarce done moss cotton and meat for the living, which compasses proud things round about and finds the weather changing too quick, too unaccommodated in the ungodly brutal, such as cannot see the souls for lichens, and cannot be but some spirit given bone and invisible, but for prying microscopes, a cut glass sheen turning dead lights on. And I'm going to conclude with another cheery number called Ideology in the Microscope. Uh, this piece on Jacket 2 says I have an odd mixture of hum humour and apocalyptic gloom. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to come to terms with this description. Um, sometimes the jokes are easier on the page than read aloud. Um, one brief little thing. The Cambridge Rocking Microtome is a scientific instrument designed by one of Darwin's sons in the uh, second half of the 19th century and made in Cambridge. Um, and it's a little uh, rocking thing which allows you to slice um, lichens uh, really thin. And that once you've sliced them really thin, you can put them under a microscope and you can tell certain things about them. So you can torture them. Um, one of the things that this Cambridge Rocking Microtome was used to discover was the extent to which the dual hypothesis of lichens was indeed uh, an accurate description of the um, biology of lichens, which took quite a long time for people to accept. But the Cambridge Rocking Microtome was one of the agents of that ideological displacement. This poem's called Ideology in the Microscope. As the acclaim hurts an evidence, making furrows that might become monitors of pollution, staring at the lit key, turning the vitrines, and not even fastness in rancor can assemble culls into big data. But light hammers for any old nail, exploding into archives of answers, greedy for brighter event horizons. As focus gives, it taketh away, back and forth, in sweet firth, lay vivid till the song sings. Its serving engine angles festoons on to Cambridge rocking microtomes. How after the stain, balsam mounts. How radial enclosure fields this current crop. How real feeling bled into the making of this, this demonstrating incision, lines in the fold of all violence or ill rule for parasitic questions that call into classing the thank blood. Down sulfur pools for siestas by vivid moons, these still explosions were never quite still, nor brisk, high tones of pragmatism merely open to the worker with the requisite skills to mark slaughter in some percentage of dead empties done to ladder each civil dialogue. Bad mouthing as lichens to blaspheme the earth's speechless for capitals became dark water stars in dappled strings soldered to linger by cloud varieties laddering grammars. Lichens as concrete poems to built brutalism, with the islands of said markets recognizing no water markets as colonies and territory choppers. Macro moors the pity of dull bias, where the smile becomes fluid tropes for twists, in on swallows clusters for bright murmurations. How the bland, featureless spore is but drab from crumbles, spindles, a pattern. Lichen arias sing to scraping in the dark, capital on the make. Like the pathetic fallacy making a home from home in the artifact of entire affect stocks for butter candy in signposts of the scissor. Lichen arias hoop to lungs in the purple steeps in the wrath for a keepsake made do standing in with universal suffrage of the lichen canals that are bound to some different grant. Draft drift sing deftly till the song is an end in ourselves. Yes, even to the rust of recorded pride, limestone or sun. Thank you.
all poets. I'm a short prose writer in so many ways. Um, okay, from lichens to um, moss, so not that far. I was trying to think of a clever thing to say that would link Marx and Spencer with moss bros and high streets and capital, but it's just not there. Someone else, please come up with something clever and insert it as a heckle uh, while I find my place. Um, thank you very much, Lydia and Rosie, for having me. Um, and thank you all very much for coming. Uh, I'm going to be reading mostly from Frit, which is a collection of poetry and uh, poetic prose, or prose that attempts poetry in some way. Um, and that's from Sad Press. And I'll start with a couple of poems and then end back on my kind of prosaic behavior. Um, so, Moss. We spent the afternoon accompanied by Lichtenberg, his figurines tracing and reciting lines across some greening stone patting faults of buildings dry and popping favourite words into each other's waiting mouths. The way that birds feed smaller birds is never unimportant. The building was discreet, spelled E-T-E or discreet E-E-T, I never can remember any crucial difference, and I agreed teeth only really ever occur as a rough allegory of efficiency as you bit directly into a cathedral wall. Rain sebum on the cafe window, later you'll insist on using words like smaragdine, and I cannot be seen to query it directly. We are realizing that one of us is an idiot, but I suspect that the G and the letter D exist in too close proximity for something not yellow to fully handle. I would not have words catch in our throats, not here above my eyes where all comes excerpted and fleet. Between mouthfuls of each other and cathedrals, you imply that I am being very quiet. And these are the only two facts that I can ever remember. In Switzerland, and this is a Swiss fact, it is illegal to own a single guinea pig. These animals are prone to loneliness. And this is not always a Swiss fact. You remember all facts, and you are greater for it. Your shoulders are broader for it, with armfuls of stolen plants and stonework in our teeth. And we both agree to find notions of buildings ungainly, but entirely understandable. This week, I find that you are particularly interested in moss, so I am getting into moss and into surfaces generally. Uh, and this, from moss to... stays a bit with greenery. I guess that's a link that we'll go with. Um, this is rivered or riverred. What a rich shanty, shanty she is, the river said of you. Gate like a folk song. I told it to stick with what it understood. When the Thames spoke only of Thames, I grew frightened of its ego. Tides fisty cuffs and letter S's. Stories of distant snowshat mountains, the size of pebbles on the beach, the bulk of its own aboyment, freem and limbeck, hoarfrost that it had halved and had and savoured where Walter's thrall and stint stiffened at its beck and call, a river wiry and wary and wily. I am, of course, referring to my rich inner life, said a tree, eavesdroppingly. He had other advice. Never romanticise a nosebleed. And just sometimes, the tree added, leaning in, at a pedestrian's crossing, the green man still permits a passage antlers bronchilic against the sky the push and pull of conversation a good wink will dislodge Harren's wages said the river quenching is underrated said the tree and my very lining makes mudlarks beside themselves in glee spore re-nozzled said the river and how they glared at each other I made my excuses and tried to leave dropping all manner of gloves and coats you do not get to use words like Icor, the tree yelled, as I fell over myself in my haste, grebes tangling in my hair, herons smoothing bills across my brow with clattered wraps. And let me tell you, the tree said, and the river agreed, there is no lunch that is not at least a little corporate. Um, then, let's see. Um, okay, a very meaningful confessional short poem. When I say potted, you say shrimp, potted, shrimp, potted. Eleanor, you're a bad gardener and DJ. Please go to bed. <laughs> um, I'm so glad no one joined in there because it is short. Um, right, this is called Clementines in November. Um, a friend of mine pointed out while kindly reading this uh, short pamphlet that quite a few of the poems do have citric fruit in them. And if someone could tell me what the meaning of that is, I'd love to know. Um, in this one, it's Clementines or clementines, depending. Sudden gladness as sweet hullaboo or hullabaloo of understanding. A gargoyle falling in love with its pigeon. Remit and permit just sounds made by frogs craving. Their carving untrapes waywardliness. 
And according to my phone, many ferrets salam the large hard-on collider. And wow, oh wow, idiots have been attempting couplets for as long as they've been pairing apples with perfect scansion, holding patterns of speech. Coming porcupinal are taught attempts at sweetness, grist, champ, pomp. This is not typical. Oh God, it may as well be raining beef. Don't look so daunted, the day seems to say. You have surely heard of my theatricals, the impressions of teeth and other chaotic folios. And if I can make you laugh, I have probably won the sun back. And tomorrow I might be tall again, just as the valley cannot hold out for the faithfulness of its glaciers or glaciers. And this part of me would not fit in your ear. More's the pity. How's that for social choreography? And I want to be clear, if only once, in parentheses, you are unmissable. You were Clementines in November. Time's tiny indiscretions, the smallness of its compass, cannot touch my celebration of your being here. The skin of your, by the skin of your right here, indexed in the page of you. Pulped, pumped, pulse of it, lain out. The awful necessity of drinking raucous coffee. The make-believe of talking back to trees. I've been spelling things the American way for months, just to seem well-traveled, counting down the evening's beasteries, your beastliness. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, and then that prose that I threatened, even worse, it hasn't got any full stops in it. So if I go more puce than I am at the moment, and it looks like I'm gasping for air, that is what's happening. Um, help. <laughs> okay. Uh, and this is called Miss List. Um, like every other love letter since the dawn of etc., it is not at all important. But I think you should know that I do not type well. And in fact, for example, only today I noticed a once important page now incorrectly bears the title list of famous people who owed chow dogs. And it is not crucial, but perhaps you would like to learn that Freud's favourite chow ate one of its own puppies, and Michael Field, florid poet, quantum aunt, held a wake for theirs on a dais with a garland made of iris crowns, while photographs of Georgia O'Keeffe's pair show them scuffling and staring at pebbles through a studio window. O'Keeffe, O'Keeffe, the sound of paws in the mistaken dust. And through my window, the air is still, and still it is air, despite all the dogs and what they are owed. And although I am wanting more than I can know and know more than I can have, suddenly I find that I am very seriously considering taking up smoking and coffee and metalwork on account of the apron and the possibility of new arms. And now look, I've started using words like suddenly and seriously to get across to you as quickly as possible that those words might be faster still in italic, seriously, suddenly, as if time is of the essence and I might do anything. Honestly, I could be very dangerous. Might add olive oil to ice cream even and become that kind of person. And I hope you might sense here my delight, but really my hope is that you might read this, put your papers down wherever you are, of course, wherever you'd like, and wherever you and your papers might like to think that you might like to think to fold the corner of your page because you owe it the reminder of its own sense of time and place. And then you, or the idea of you, might join me in something like the thought of a garden that we share, a garden big enough for the idea of a dog or a smithy, I don't know, with an olive tree or a porch balanced on bricks. And I could have thought to plant irises in time during the late summer, to break off seed pods that form after the blooms have faded, making dividing a habit. And you might raise a glass of something and say, here's to more errors of good owing and more mistaken mafias of dogs lolling their heads together and getting along infamously, lionly rather than leonine on account of the silliness of a mid-afternoon sun, the colour of warmth and idling, as we and the dogs pant and eat our favourites and think nothing of it, bringing something along the lines of flowers down around our fat-headedness and be as full of errors as we can bear. And we stay for this moment where the idea of you sitting with me is something possible, shared, sufficient, real, unpenned, a distinct improvement. Thank you very much. Hi. Um, today is the, uh, the second anniversary of the death of the poet Stephen Rodifer, who was a friend of the Cambridge Literary Review and whose uh, work is in a number of issues, I think, or at least one other issue, but is in this issue too. Um, 
And I would read his poem aloud from that, but his voice was too sweet for me to attempt it. So it can be a reading to yourself one. Um, so I, I toasted him then, that water, inappropriately. This is called Diplomatic Mission. But we'll still call you by the same name, said all the animals, understated, in a message scratched on bark. Weren't we volatile enough to turn the pieces into lively objects? To splice the rumors with confusion of roles and speech extravagant? This is the meeting place. This is not the meeting place we agreed on. What hurts? As if in a vacuum you lifted your forehead and tried to take your breath from the mirror. Embellishment. Maybe relaying your escapades, turning to the horizon, remembering some other's beloved revolt. Naturally, there were fires. Naturally, and in the replay, we were certain of the beacon and its function. Relief with streaks of guilt. Edges of crease and detail. No more hunters, no more dogs, only birds. My days of escapism concluded. Now we're in a different book, but the plains are still vague. So you choose to write, write vaguely, flood the detail with creatures, like the cinnamon bird broken by lead. Give me courage with a split lip out loud, did you say that? Give me courage, half spoken, half sung, to keep concealments dry by listening. By listening to my daylight fitness, calling on delicate features. White grass on my tongue, on my tongue white grass, like a widow for the season, and nothing confess. It's called mythical creatures. Like, for example, prone to defeat far flung, I called this. Each night the sky is more clear and my voice is bigger than the animals and faithful to the horizon, dried in the breeze, foregone but not rapidly unhappy, not raw in the absence of grief and shading authority's choices to spit the lucky animals while the shade switches, listless, offhand, listless, because I sacrifice accuracy for pleasures only formal when indulgence starts to count the geese on two hands, saying this is my lean period, as tender as the desert, in a dream you didn't have to keep from anyone. This is called Joy Sparkled in All Their Eyes. Right now the days are too fragile to move, high and scraping the calendar. Too much scrutiny bruised us on tape. But don't be confused by joy, afraid of error. I have been sublime and seen the other, late in the decade, stripped of agility, learning to turn. We have our own words for these things, movements, announcements, and news. Sometimes you stay awake all night with friends and strangers. Sometimes it's good news, or at least the news feels good. Even ending in stalemate feels good to be right. But don't be consumed by the shapes. I mean the graphs and the colors. I mean the seats and the days still to come. The title of this poem is a joke about Milton because in the line right after he talks about voting. So really it's a joke about us. I had some lines by other people written down. The artist Ida Applebrug says, this is not a kite, this is a 1% glimmer of light. Ignore the numbers in your own time. The artist Ida Applebrug also says, more mysteriously, a golden screw with no message. Why? I say that she said it, she painted. Draw the inside of your water-damaged body. Draw your hand with your hand and start counting. The point is, this is also a message. We were golden threads running through the city, through the city half invisible. And when we said light, it was light. The big gray kind of light, light gray, no source, just even and strong, no origin, tired of admiring the sirens, combining pure form right when what we needed was analysis. I mean this with no expertise. If you weren't there, it's like a letter. We needed something to celebrate because it's better to be bold and capacious, to gloat and laugh with grace and half humility late in the decade with no expertise, but something social and feeling. All we did was knock doors and hype. When I'm in a stairwell, I like to whoop and clap. I like the pure form of the echo. I like to be doubled and tripled. 
I'd like to be the 12 minor prophets, but the days are too fragile, or the days are too volatile and tough, and I'm nowhere near volatile enough. My favorite character in Jonah and the whale is the whale. My favorite character in Jonah and the whale is God. My favorite character in Jonah and the whale is the plankton. The 40 million plankton the whale must have eaten alongside Jonah every day, or twice a day, rising to the surface at night, caught by golden threads. This is a poem about biomass and voting. This is a poem about the 12 minor prophets, Milton, the artist Ida Applebrook, the Labour Party, the first 11 days of the month of June, and millions of edible plankton. The game of favourites is lesser identity, and sometimes you just have to choose. There's no joy in plankton. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com whales rising to the surface at night and spending the days avoiding the profits with nothing to chew. Sometimes knocking on doors wakes up people on the night shift. And this is bad prophecy, bad timing. No one needs to be woken up. Jonah was asleep in the whale. The whale was asleep. The plankton slept in shifts. My voice was sore. My heart was overexcited. My biomass was incalculable. My life was one of indulgence, pure in the gray light of morning. And we were neither inside nor outside the whale. E.P. Thompson says another name for the beast of history is experience. Even the swindles have something to teach. E.P. Thompson is 40 million plankton furiously swimming to catch you. It was 2017. Our ribbons were trailing in the wind and our fires made the smoke more bearable. It was a poem completely falling apart because the content and experience was serious, but I reverted to the past tense, deep in the habit of lamentation. It was serious, but not solemn, like the minor prophets eaten by whales marooned on the shores of Iraq. Sometimes a terrible metaphor turns up at your house when you're sleeping. Sometimes you're the metaphor, waiting for the government to fall apart, wearing my short-sleeved summer shirt because it's summer, near enough midnight, and it's sweet Williams on the table, pink and green and white, near enough blank. 72% of young people turned out to vote in the election, and what I did in the poem was, I moved the flowers indoors. That's it. <laughs> everyone and thank you for being here. If it weren't for the, the wonderfulness of all of you and particularly Lydia and Rosie, I, I might be in another country right now, further north. Some of this is going to be quite old and some of it is going to be very new, but there won't be anything from the middle. <laughs> from a book of hours, 0625 hours. Since there has been no other color but violet, is that what to call the mist that neither rises nor folds above the flood meadow? Since there is no other color but violet, do we make that the way to detect the new tips to branches that winter has bared so that trees stand static, recalling what's too deep in flesh, our electrified nerves? 
given the mind's first confusion each day, since remainders of ourselves unseen throw us off, so far as those filaments make us uneasy, how is it possible that anything strikes us as other than violet, the color the sun seems to impose between our eyes and the effort to see? And the ordinary craving to look has nowhere to go that is not to and from what seem like strong lights, so every experience one after another intensifies into a temporary unspectacular individual blindness. That is actually a Cambridge poem from 2005, uh, which is partly inspired by working with Liz Irwin, uh, a classicist who's explaining to me that violet is, and all references to sort of purplish colors uh, encodes the presence of eros uh, in Greek drama. Sweet fool. He has gone out upon the waters against advice. Sure of nothing but that he must go, he has gone out upon waters that count for nothing, profit nor holiday. The waters clean him, cleanly him as he was, shareable darkness. But for that one night found sitting king-like, too blacked out to sing, his drinkers, his court, his courted home kicking him out, the stickiness of people who used him, wiring and smearing his hair, his kisses tighter than reconnections, tightened like the fingers of an uncollected child. A child he has gone out. The waters bob and sunrise is a spinning top. He has done everything, hung his shirt out cleanly, clean blue and white stripes on the line. There's a poem here in three voices. It's actually supposed to be a motet. I'm not actually sure I can do that tonight. Unless Ely wanted to do it with me. Sorry. <laughs> Would have needed to practice. Okay. This one's from the thing in, in that, because I think I should. It's from Persephone in Ulipo, and the source text, which nobody has been retweeting, is, is Helen Tukey, Missile Child, Carcanet 2014, and Jules Cashford, The Homeric Hymns. Number one, leaving out you. No intercessor comes between who can reach from one to the other. What we were is now abstracted like green from the shade of sky or sea, like grey from the idea of violet. We were one. Since being two, I was won over and moved by this stringent and maidenly idea of her. Yet am I now one again, casting a single shape of Hades in fields which I walk in darkness from dawn to noon. Given the daylight at the edge of my eyes and overspilling the crown of my head appears like direct address. Oh, forgive me. Radiance was ever something stealing from, something I stole from. I cannot write it, cannot simply write, write simply the significant word that might mean my little other. Ah, I owe her more than fractional or waxen appellations, my brighter half, my trinity pronominal. How my lips tensed and sphered, allowing sheer vowel that meant that, that, not alone. Strike through, I, you. When she left, she meant to stay gone. Strike through, E. Difficult to track from portal to portal who sought whom. Nobody was found. I'll read now just one bit from the second section of that sequence, uh, and the line from Helen Tukey's radio's talk of Rhodesia. And the exercise was actually from Stephen Fowler, who asked us to rewrite one line in, in different genres. Uh, so I decided to write mainstream English lyric. 
all of which things I am, or was, I'm Scottish now. Don't laugh, you might need me for a visa soon. <laughs> Mainstream English, oh sorry, I have to do it like this. Mainstream English lyric. <laughs> this afternoon I sat down slowly with my golden notebook. Having no job and needing none, since you, Aunt Flory, passed away bequeathing me the sweets of leisure and the ill-gotten bankable treasure of the lady agriculturist you once were. Your tobacco farming... Sorry, sorry, just... Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Your tobacco farming auntly kiss lingers in me like nicotine. Yeah. I mean this in a nice way, not incest, of course. <laughs> Left justified and justifiably a winner. As in your honor, I sip Colombar, a strangely peacefully named wine from an eternal war zone. Oh, so much to regret. The shady media of the heart. Okay, so that, that, that was my best shot at a mainstream English lyric. Could you possibly understand why I don't write them? But So, this one is June from a calendar that is called Winter to Winter. Therefore, it runs from a January to, of one year to February to another. Imaginary years, of course. And somebody asked me why the calendar had 14 months that I miscounted. And I said, no, it was winter to winter, and so on. Anyway, this is another Cambridge poem, which I first read uh, in a reading with Andrea Brady, which scared me a lot in a good way. On metaphor, hot words, lungs, galaxy of blood funnels through surgeon or murderer only tunnels, the usually invisible. Shoes a comet tail thicketed with not yet histories, unwanted up towards air as speech. Not a word. Oh, la, the mouth closes, opens like an idol's in a chant-jeweled epoch confronting conversion, bound to speak to the forbidding preacher who burns to encounter it, as one day recorded as dry as invasion, as building description, as harvest, coronation, plague. Not a second. Amber light is barking, hold up in the gatehouse. Oh, the picture, this walls, push on a stage of welcome. Sinister, Dexter, back, forward, back. Now will it go away? Ice for brains. The air has altered. What now? A mineral strip, a calcium tongue about to burn to ash. Who arrives late into night and with a load of bitterness asking to find lightness, needing neither black nor green? Who stepped ashore heels like a fisherman's slipper, salted and scalded in mud? Who stood down when welcomes were being chosen? Who stands foot forwards between split planks? Tell them, come sit in the garden. Tell them, the fence is mended and the neighbors permanent. Say, listen, forget for a space the noises, continually the noises, dropping to their halts. What else can they ask, warmed with the smell of petrol and roses? What can they be asking, shown the night a safe tiger in chromium and jet? What more can they ask? It is starting to sound religious, that things may be like nothing other than themselves. So beer is like beer, and cabbage roses, cabbage roses. If once you take it on, it makes itself come true. Perfect correspondence, and the mind stops there, like... Like a dream that peels its skin off to strand you burning in a landscape. Do you call that awake? 
of blank sheets. Corpse in the garden, not of earth, long fingers, a mineral deposit, body the haft of a six-foot key, incisors pointing past the geraniums, jaws galley, sea-bright, washed as snails. Blame, blame our imaginations. We beasts, we overfed them. Fantastic now and sleeked. Hear how they've grown since. That pounding their scutate hooves on the cliff road, trading in sea for scene. I say they brought this. And how? The thunderheads. Why, at a gallop? What massed them? Taking the shape of clouds, but drawing, drawing, arrogating some of the pull of the moon. Watch that tide line. The salt shore not recovered. Inland, the flotsam, and also up there where it should be protected, the pressed shells paths between picket fences. There is no more letting them out. Now think of been reading for 13 minutes, and I had promised you 12. <laughs> I'm going to do one very short one in four bits, which is called Water. And again, I really should have conscripted people. It's in four bits with spaces, and it's much better on the page, like many poems can be. One, Cold Hands. There is a moment when the water seems as if it might be warm. Quick, wash your face in the illusion. Two, the Atlantic, like putting a handspan square of glass flat on the sea, thinking I see something. That's the sky. Calling the color roaring gray heard in December when the tide discourages. That's a lie. Three, opalescent crystalline amethyst and dark. The sea is. In my mind, I never left you. The sea is. Placeholder, holder of a place. The sea, who can hold to this? A causeway is. Essential ground for memory. Twig runes dust the shore with bird tracks. And the wind, four, changes. Swans and rain and swans in rain. Swans and rain, swans again. Thank you. <laughs> No, it was very kind of you to rewrite that. It's exciting. In fact, I think I sent the page because my poems are, in fact, deeply boring in linear time. Uh, I think that there's a real problem with... Uh, I mean, I'm very happy to be here, but there's a real problem with poets being required to be commodified as bodies uh, and, and hauled around from location to location. But I think some poems, like tapestries, are better looked at uh, for all the strands to be followed in different... And, and also, other poems are a bit more like musical scores. Not many people would bring more Mozart back from the dead is the only way of hearing Mozart. So actually I'd be quite happy for other people to read or for co-readers to try to read some of the things that I do write for linear time. I can't really speak for the others. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I write for the page, but with a sense that it's a score. And uh, long ago, I was entranced by discovering a kind of Hebridean form where um, there's a, a mode of kind of religious singing where um, everyone says it differently and that there's no rule on how it should be said. And that what you need is the Red Army choir of all those different voices assembling into a kind of different kind of democracy of song. So I write with a sense of the plurality of possible voices. And in the way Varney suggests, there's a problem with kind of stamping my own sort of slightly lugubrious Scottish shed tones all over it as though that were the correct voice I don't imagine it that way I imagine it as being very plural um, so in some sense I read them because it helps people find a way in and I hope they find their own voices rather than stick with mine since Drew mentioned the Red Army Choir I'll just say you know that would be like the ideal wouldn't it you know for your, your poetry but you're just kind of stuck uh, with your own voice I've got a cat and it's you know it's August so I feel a bit like I don't really like speaking aloud to an audience in, you know, while in the climate uh, of August when it's humid, you know? So there's all these things to, to take into consideration with the voice, you know? Um, I think because generally I am, this is a very boring answer to a very interesting question, um, because I am used to writing in quite... Um, formulaic prose style I think oh how exciting this bit is written in capital letters that'll wake them up and it is only when reading aloud and reading poetry out loud I find that that kind of um, gimmick its gimmickness is really a flag is raised there um, and the kind of subtleties that come not through intonation or accent or uh, kind of measured pacing or kind of rocking back and forth but through just the what the meter affords um, is uh, extraordinary I'd love to see what the poems that you guys read look like on the page because I have an idea of what they would have looked like hearing them but I'm sure it's a completely different kind of score or choreography um, written down I find that when reading out loud and you heard it a lot um, suddenly I start really regretting using a simple word like clementine because it becomes clementine and glacier becomes glacier and then I you people in the front row probably got the benefit of me kind of rolling my eyes at myself like really you can stick with the one that you want <laughs> like no one here is going to grab the page off you and dictate which one you'd like um, but I wouldn't say that that's a, a gendered thing um, gender is always a mistake <laughs> um, <laughs> I would actually be interested in a kind of stereometric analysis or statistical analysis. Uh, I've just been counting the syllables of some of my words, uh, and it's many of them are easily five. Uh, but I wonder if it's because uh, some of those syllables are, are, you know, made up of things like derivatives and, and uh, you know, affixes uh, that maybe the words come across as being shorter, like unspectacular, which I mean the un and the ah, so it's got a recognizable bit in the middle. Sorry, I went to the wrong university. <laughs> I mean, next poem is going to be really small words from me. That's all I can say. Even smaller. <laughs> I chose mine because um, one of them was just the, a, a new poem that I wanted to uh, see what it sounded like reading it aloud, and then the other ones were uh, were more familiar to me, and so were like uh, like doing scales or something, you know, doing a, doing a number that you know. I don't actually read my poetry very aloud, aloud very often, so um, uh, maybe I'm I can't answer this question really very well. I don't th I don't think about it too much, but. Um, I, I chose three poems that are in Cambridge Literary Review, thinking that people might be interested in reading them in the magazine and that it was that was what we were here for, and one to introduce them, and that seemed straightforward to me. Um. 
I did choose a bit of the one in the Cambridge Literary Review and a couple of others with Cambridge connections, either overt or covert. Uh, and then I've been doing rather too many readings, which isn't a complaint. Uh, but I, I never know who's here because I get into far more of a state of nerves than is visible. And you all morph into one sort of very beautiful kaleidoscopic mass. Uh, and so I nervously try to do a different mix uh, from whatever I've read recently in case you're coming again and again and again. <laughs> Uh, I think kind of maybe returning to the tapestry that you were describing in, in, in the earlier answer, I try and find a kind of a thread or a, a ricochet that will join them all together. I don't know how well that works, but it's interesting that for the um, for this tenth issue, the theme was marginalia or margins. And maybe if I can leap on your question and fling it at, at the editors, um, what was the what was the reason for that choice? Is there usually a theme for the for the issues? <laughs> But, um, yeah, I'd say um, a lot of the issues have had themes. Some haven't had themes. Um, what drew us to this? I mean, we had elaborate plans to, to do something um, that we didn't end up managing to do, which was to get um, holograph annotations on some of the poems by some of the other contributors, which is a real shame, except we do have um, a wonderful one um, by Varney on the CLR website who's annotating uh, Peter Gizzy poems. So that's well worth a look. We were hoping to get more of that in, but in general, it just seemed something, a theme that was broad enough that we could tie in um, the essays and the prose and uh, the prose fiction rather and and the poetry um, and it gave us an opportunity to put out kind of a, a targeted call and we don't often have open submissions so that in itself was quite an interesting experience to have kind of a theme then you know people are kind of developing work for for that issue and that's quite exciting um, is there anything you want to add Lydia? <laughs> <laughs> Look, we're supposed to be professionals. <laughs> we had a very interesting essay, didn't we? We had a very interesting essay on a Cambridge school and and footnote theme, and then she withdrew it anyway. And we built an entire issue around it, and then she'd already published it somewhere. Do you remember? I think that is actually where it came from. But it did give us, um, it, it was a baggy enough theme, I think, and um, to explore a lot of different things. Um, and I don't know if it comes through or not, so I'd be interested to hear what you all think. Um, I think for me, the ignition is entirely selfish, but the editing is for other people. Um, and uh, I don't know about the others, but when I'm writing, I will be both saying them in my head out loud, in loud, uh, and physically out loud um, to work out whether it would suit the way that I know that I would read it and justify it almost to an audience, um, which maybe isn't a good thing, but it is. That's I guess that's the process that I go through. But um, what do other people, how would other people answer that? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, to tell the truth, that whenever I try to answer that sort of question, whatever I say immediately sounds wrong. And possibly I need to refer back to a Henry James short story in the Figure in the Carpet collection, in which there are two authors on holiday with non-author people. And if I remember correctly, they mystify the non-author people, because one of them sometimes resolves into a sort of positive absence, and the other one seems to have a doppelganger. <laughs> It's difficult talking because I just want to listen to everybody else's answers. And I guess um, maybe maybe writing poetry um, involves quite a lot of listening and, uh, and, and reading other people's work and so on. So writing poetry is always... Uh, always involves other people. I don't, I don't see it as being a particularly uh, individuated um, sort of uh, uh, role or practice or something. It's always... Always too too many people <laughs> crowding in if you're writing poems or something. But um, that and also I'm in it for the money, you know. <laughs> Just trying. To, I'm not going to follow that. Um, I I I write um, 
from a tradition that's interested in the sociality of language rather than in expressing myself. So I'm much more interested in the politics of song in relation to a democratic representation of the possibilities of all languages for all people in a way that would radically rewrite the way in which we use and think about language under the conditions of capitalism. So I'm trying to write an anti-capitalist poetics. And in this recent section of work that I've been doing, I've been... Uh, troubled by the extent to which the stat sociality depends on conditions of possibility that are not themselves human and that the representation of that is very difficult and that one of the things I've been interested in is the history of oxygen in the long history of the de the great oxygenation event that makes it possible for life to exist on the planet lichens play a significant part and continue to play a significant part in the kind of possibility of oxygen and we depend in certain micro respects on lichens all through our life without people ever having really quite realized the extent to which they owe something to lichens. So I'm interested in a revolutionary front with the lichens in relation to an anti-capitalist poetics that would address the politics of the lack of representation and justice given to lichens. To give you a micro example, lichens absorb radionuclides. Nuclides. You can, Arctic lichens have within them the traces of the Pacific nuclear tests of the 1950s. Those lichens are eaten by reindeer, the reindeer eaten by Sami herders. Nuclear material from British nuclear tests in the 1950s ends up in the stomachs of Sami herders now. And what do you do about that as a politics of representation other than to try and trace through the many ways in which that's happened? So that's one of the things I've been working on in many different ways in terms of how lichens put you in the politics of representation, but in, within a broadly Marxist anti-capitalist politics. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.